1: Hello, everyone. I am C.P. Leslie, the host of new books in historical fiction. Today I'm speaking with Charlene Ball about Dark Lady, which explores the life of Amelia Bassano-Lanier, including her relationship with William Shakespeare. Scholars disagree over whether Amelia was Shakespeare's model for the Dark Lady of his sonnets, but either way, she was not only the poet's lover. Amelia wrote remarkable poetry of her own. When we first meet her, she is very young. October 1576 "'No, I won't go,' Amelia shouted, kicking at the rushes on the floor. "'Stop that and come here, Amelia.' Her mother held out her arms. Amelia stomped around the room, shouting, "'No, no! Stomp! Stomp! No, 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 no!' "'Stop!' implored her mother. The little girl stood teetering as her mother began to cough. She stood on one foot, then slowly lowered the other to the floor. "'Stop coughing, Mama!' Her mother pressed her handkerchief to her mouth, swallowing hard, then sprang up and grabbed her daughter by the shoulders. You are going to the Countess of Kent, and that's all there is to it. Lemia went limp and began to wail as her mother held her tight. Don't cry, darling. Please don't cry. They clung to each other, sobbing. When they pulled apart, her mother sat on the stool and lifted her daughter onto her lap. She wiped Amelia's cheeks with her apron and ran her hands over the little girl's tangled curls. She smoothed the hair back from her small forehead and kissed it. "'You know I don't want you to go.' "'Then I'll stay,' Amelia said, snuggling close to her mother. "'No, you must go. You are seven years old now and of an age to be fostered. The Countess has offered, of her goodness, to take you into her service and have you educated as a gentlewoman. It is a very great honor and an opportunity for you.' Her mother drew a deep breath. "'If I could give you all you need, I would never, ever let you go.' But I can't. So, yes, I want you to go. Amelia swallowed and nodded. Her mother tightened her arms. Go and show the Countess how we musician folk can strut and spout Latin with the best of them. And now, please join me in welcoming Charlene Ball.
0: Hi, Charlene. I look forward to talking with you today. Hi, Carolyn. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing very well, thank you. Tell us about your life before Dark Lady. Uh, you're a professor of English literature, especially Renaissance literature, as well as a poet and a
0: playwright. Uh, how did that all come about? I taught English for many years at colleges and universities in North Carolina and Georgia. I have a B.A. from Wake Forest, I'm student in English, and an M.A. from the University of North Carolina at Greensboro, And that's where I really started reading about the Elizabethan drama and loving it. Did my thesis on Christopher Marlowe. And I got a Ph.D. in comparative literature focused on Renaissance drama. And then I began teaching. And ever since between 1997 and 2009, I was the administrator in in the Women's Studies Institute at Georgia State University. It's now called the Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies. And so I taught women's studies and and did uh, administer the program. So that's kind of my academic background. And I've always loved um, the Elizabethan Renaissance age and have always been writing, really. I wrote, I've been writing all, most of my life.
1: So how did you, have you been writing fiction most of your life or how did you transition from academic writing into
0: fiction? I've always loved writing fiction. That's really my first love with writing. I did uh, some academic articles and then very happily went back to writing fiction. I wrote uh, two, two unpublished novels back in the 70s and 80s and I wrote some plays. Which one? Um, one got a very nice staged reading. The one about Christopher Marlowe that has Shakespeare and Amelia as characters, and uh, so I, and then I wrote a play about Shakespeare and Amelia, but that's very different from my novel.
1: So, what drew you to Amelia and her story in particular?
0: I heard a lecture in the late nineteen seventies when I was in graduate school by historian A. L. Ralph who was expounding his theory that Amelia Lanier was the dark lady of Shakespeare's sonnets. And I was intrigued because the idea that, that she had been discovered, first of all, because most English literature people said, oh, it's not possible to know who this woman was. And so Ralph said, yes, he had discovered her doing research. Um, the astrologer, Simon Foreman, Amelia is one of, was one of Simon Foreman's clients, and I was so excited to find out that she, was, that she might have been involved with Shakespeare and that she was a writer in her own right, a poet in her own right, and that she was an early feminist. She published a book in 1611, which was a book of religious poetry, which makes strong arguments for women's equality.
1: That's great. Now you mentioned that your play about Amelia and Shakespeare was very different. Did you,
0: did you use that as a basis for a novel or did you really start from scratch? I started from scratch. The play was written decades ago and I see Amelia very differently now. I didn't follow the, I didn't follow the facts of her life very carefully in the play and so she doesn't come across at all in the play the way I see her now. So let's talk about her then. I mean she's
1: far from the only character in this wonderful book, but uh she's definitely its center. Uh, it's her novel, her mm-hmm. focus. Um she has a very interesting history. How did she end
0: up in England for starters? Well, she was born in England. She was born in Bishopsgate. See um her family, the Bassanos, were um musicians for the doze of Venice. And I'll say more about their background in a in a minute. But for at least a couple of generations, they had been in a small town near Venice called Bassano del Grappa, which is still there, by the way. And then they moved to Venice and were musicians for Joe's, who was the, the ruler of Venice. And then Henry VIII invited the five Bassano brothers to London to be court musicians. They had a consort uh, that is. Uh, like a band of all of wind instruments, and they were known as musicians and instrument makers. So they came to London, and one of the five brothers, the youngest, was Amelia's father. He he married an English woman named Margaret Johnson, who might have also been of an English family of musicians. That Robert Johnson, who was well a well-known Renaissance musician, might might be related to Amelia also. So Amelia was born in uh in London her father died when she was 7 and then she she and her mother were were alone and so the book tells about how she came to be uh fostered by the countess of kent lady susan but more about amelia's background i guess you want me to say a little more about the Murano aspect i guess she um Actually, may have been from a family of conversos or secret Jews see the um, the Jews were driven out of Spain by Ferdinand and Isabella, and they scattered some went to North Africa, some went to Italy, some went up into europe and uh, so the theory is it's not proven, but it's believed by many scholars that the Bassanos came from a family of converted Jews and they converted in order to escape persecution and then found out that wasn't going to help them really. So they left Spain and then, Mm -hmm. uh, and Italy they enjoyed a, a great amount of freedom, but then when they came to England, uh, you know, they lived as English people, uh, as Protestants and went to the English church. It's believed that they may be Jews because of connections they have with, uh, known Jewish musicians like the Lupo family and others that they married into. And you see, the theory was that there were no Jews in England, that they were expelled in uh, 1290 by King Edward I. but there were always Jews in England to a certain extent. You know, there was the queen's physician, Dr. Rodrigo Lopez. There was another, a well-known family named the Anyes or Ames family. And uh, they, they were there. They were just either hidden or they passed They passed as Christians. Yeah, and of course
1: it was quite common in Elizabethan England, uh, not only for Jews to pass as Christians, but for one type of Christian to pass as another type of Christian, because oh, yes. it was very, you know, there was this law <laughs> right. that you had to be Protestant, um, and although Elizabeth herself didn't burn people to the same degree as her sister um the penalties for mm-hmm. being caught not being uh, of the approved sub faith were
0: mm-hmm. extremely severe. It could have been very confusing, especially during Henry VIII's reign, because Henry would change his mind from decade to decade, and so at one in one decade you were not allowed to read. Uh, the the uh, Tyndale, the Protestant translations of the Bible. Another decade, they were they were put in the churches and, every, and were supposed to be read to from the read from from the pulpit. So, Shakespeare, there's a suspicion that Shakespeare's father was a secret Catholic, and so that that theory is very interesting.
1: That is interesting. I hadn't heard that mm-hmm. one. I have heard about uh, mm-hmm. Dr. Rodriguez Lopez and the Anyas family because another author that I interviewed a couple of years ago, uh, Anne Swinfin, has an entire series called The Chronicles of Cristobal Alvarez. And Cristobal mm-hmm. is a Murano, uh living in England. He's a doctor.
0: I uh, want to read those. those oh, those, you would love to, because amazing. actually
1: Cristobal is Kit uh, and... Uh, his, in mm-hmm. quotation marks, original name is Katerina.
0: Ah, okay. <laughs> I, must look at, I must look that up. What's her name? Skin
1: Anne Swinfin. I'll give you the references after we finish. Um, okay, So great. what does it mean uh, for Amelia to be the daughter of a musician, even a court musician? What, how does that affect her standing and her opportunities in Elizabethan London?
0: Okay, to begin with, uh, the court musicians were considered like minor gentry. That is, they were respectable people, but they were not well to do. Many, and, and so many of her relatives did manage to make a good bit of money and bought houses outside the city and were pretty prosperous. Her father died with debt. So she was in a pretty bad state, um, after her father died. And that's, that's why her mother sent her away to be fostered by Lady Susan who has made the offer to because she believes in education for women as a woman Amelia could not be a court musician That was, was she could not be a member of the consort so I show that as something that is a major obstacle for her because she is talented and she plays the flute and uh, the keyboards and if she had been a boy she could have done that But that was close to her. There were women uh, at court who were entertainers, but there were no professional musicians that I know of. And uh, there were even women who appeared on the stage, but they were really special cases and they were not, in general, they were not the actors. Women's roles were played by men and boys. So Amelia didn't have same kind of opportunities open to her that um, that her father and a, a brother of hers would have had so, what, so the choices she makes are are based on her, the limitations that she knows as a woman
1: but um, that's interesting though but her social standing is such that she's not wildly out of place at the Countess of Kent's estate. She's not
0: wildly out of place but she's like I have, I kind of portray her as a little waiting, a little uh, you know, serving girl, but not on the lower level because you know at this time, uh, people people of one higher status were served by the people of the next lowest status, and they were served by the people of the next status, and so only really you know the only really lower class people who did things like empty chamber pots and clean things out. They were they were the lower class people, but. Ladies-in-waiting were often titled themselves. So Amelia is among titled people and children of titled people, even though she herself doesn't come from that kind of family. And that causes her a lot of, uh, causes her some distress because she can see daily about how she doesn't have what the other girls around her have. Like Margaret Carey, for example, who has nice dresses and Amelia has hand-me-downs.
1: Yeah, that would be difficult. Um, I mean, that's always difficult. Is it still exists in its modern form, and it's it's difficult now mm-hmm. for the people who have to, to watch it. Um, and yet this mm-hmm. this move of hers to live with the Countess of Kent, and, and this is her, ro- her route to an education, and it's really one of the more significant relationships of her life, as I understand it.
0: That's right. Mm-hmm. And uh, so Lady Susan is... Uh, know, enormously uh, influential to her, and also Lady Susan's mother, who was a famous um, uh, Marian exile. That is, she left England when Queen Mary came to the throne because she was such a committed Protestant. So Lady Susan's parents fled the country um, during Mary's reign because they were under, um, you know, right before the, they were caught up and arrested by... Cardinal um, Reginald Gardiner and S- Stephen Gardiner, excuse me, and so um, they were in exile until Mary died and lived came to the throne. So the Duchess of Suffolk really fascinates me. too that, so is Susan's mother. I'd love to write something about her sometime.
1: Oh, that would be great. I'd love to read that. Um, and what takes Amelia away from Lady Susan's house?
0: Lady Susan gets married. She's a young widow. Uh, her first husband died when she was only 19. And uh, after Amelia has stayed there for a number of years, from the time she's 7 until the time she's around uh, 13, Lady Susan marries again, and she goes with her husband, who is not mentioned in the story, but his name is Sir John Wingfield, and he was a military person. And so they went to the low countries. And so the, the household was broken up, and Amelia had to go back to her mother's house. And a mother's ill, a mother has consumption. So from being at court and having daily uh contact with titled people, she has to go back and be a caretaker to her ailing mother.
1: Um, this would be a good time to talk a little bit about Amelia's character, her personality. How do you see her and how does she react to this this change in her fortune?
0: I see her as resilient. Maybe more resilient than she realizes, as being uh, envious to a certain extent of people more fortunate than herself, and having a great deal of desire and yearning to be, one for education, and to be where th- where things are are uh, happening. Where th- you know, at court is where where things are being discussed and decisions are made, and she loves being in the middle of all that. And having access to important people. So you could say that there's a kind of, um, in her. And at the same time, it's also just her great appetite for life, excitement, um, knowledge, uh, all kinds of, all t- you know, she doesn't like dullness. However, on the other hand, she is enormously resilient and capable and staying with her mother gives her another kind of scope to develop her her ability her survival skills her practicality and her uh, frugality are are created there so she she develops a strong uh character and a resilience and um a a reliance upon herself during those teen years
1: and she's um Hanging around with her cousins, basically, right? Who are musicians. She, mm-hmm. although she can't be a professional musician, she does sometimes play with
0: them. Mm-hmm. Yes, I allowed her to play theirs. What I'm imagining is that the cousins are apprentices to the to the musicians who are their fathers and uncles, and they also are apprentice to as as instrument makers. But they also go out and play on the side. Such as, like, you know, that they might like have have a gig at an, at somebody's private house or uh, a, a party at Gray's Inn, which is where law students studied. And so that's what I'm picturing them doing here. Just that's a little extra money on the side, going out to play, and that they allowed Amelia to play with them, even though this is not official.
1: So uh, while she is, this is still fairly early in the book, so we don't go too far Mm -hmm. because we don't want to give too many plus points away, although for a historical character it's not quite as compelling as a problem as it is with an entirely made-up story, But um, because people can always Mm -hmm. go and do their research and find out. But in any case, Mm -hmm. she's at one of these gatherings with her cousins as a musician uh, when all of a sudden her life takes a really um, unexpected and unwelcome Turn. Um, mm-hmm. What happens to her? Can you explain and, and what this means for her in the context of Elizabethan England?
0: She meets a young man who she had met. She had met him previously at court, and he tried to uh, be aggressive then. And now she meets him again. He acts contrite, and so he invites her to meet him in a garden after dark. And warning signs would be going off in everybody in every direction. But Amelia is just curious. And, it was her experience. So she meets him and it's terrible because she gets raped. And then she later finds she's pregnant but then loses the uh, fetus. So she is, uh, now now that this is known among her family, it's not quite the way it would have been during Victorian times. You know, there was a lot of leeway for young women, especially in um, her class and below. But still, uh, she doesn't want what is going to have to happen. That is, the family will find someone for her to marry, and she'll be submerged into that she won't be considered um at all material for a more elevated kind of marriage so it's it's a it's an enormous event in terms of what her prospects for life are and she um
1: and she also loses her mother around this time, uh, and I'm, apologize cause I apologize because I don't remember the exact sequence whether she loses her mother and then she runs into Lord Hunsdon or mm-hmm. vice versa, but um, she's, I mean, she's 16 and
0: she's going through these enormous changes. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. She meets Lord Hunsdon at what, at another event, and he seems almost like a savior because uh, he's a thing to on the scene with so much energy and he comes he takes her home and he offers help and um and uh material help to her and her mother he gets dr lopez to come and take care of her mother and then her mother dies and she's 18 by then and so when hunson indicates that he is interested in her now that she's grown up uh even though he is many years older than she is uh she considers and finally accepts him as a lover and so she becomes his paramour. And uh first in a bit on first off, uh, who is Lord Hunston? Lord Hunston is Henry Carey, the first cousin of Queen Elizabeth. He's the son of her sister Mary Carey, who uh was the main character in The Other Boleyn Girl, if you remember that and he is uh he is the lord chamberlain that's his position he's also a, a head of military operations in the north and so he goes to uh, berwick upon tweed uh to fight against um a certain the northern uprising because their queen elizabeth's reign did not bring uh Peace and contentment to everyone, and there were a number of unconverted Catholics in the north, many of them quite powerful, who did not like uh, Protestantism being imposed upon the the country. So there were uprisings. There was uh, something called the Pilgrimage of Grace, and then there was uh, another northern uprising. Lord Huntsman was sent up there to quell that, which he did. So he's a military person, and yet he is and He's very devoted to the Queen. And so I, I picture him as a kind of a rough-and-ready soldier with yet a great deal of cultivation. He becomes a uh, patron of theater companies, including Shakespeare's theater company later, the Lord Chamberlain's Men.
1: Yes, I hadn't realized that initially, but uh, yes, he does. And he's considerably older than... Um... Um, yes,
0: so, yeah. he, he's 45 years older than she is, which seems quite shocking to people nowadays, although maybe not. Um, but there's, there is a, a huge gap in their ages. Um,
1: and yet she has a certain affection for him, and I think probably because he's so kind to her, right? Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I at first I thought I wasn't going to like him. But then the more I wrote about him, the more I realized that it was more complex than that. And Amelia does develop a great deal of affection for him. He's kind to her. He's he's protective. He is on um, a a um, as she puts it, she says he's merry and kind, and we get along well. And so she said she would marry him if she could, but she can't because of course he's already married.
1: And of course, I mean, he may love his wife or he may be kind to his wife mm-hmm. as well, but he probably didn't marry his wife for love, so...
0: Right. Uh, mm-hmm. In yeah.
1: that sense, too, I mean, attitudes were different uh, towards mm-hmm. marriage and love than they are
0: now. Yes, most marriages were arraigned in all levels of society. And yet a lot of people who were married uh, for political purposes ended up loving their spouses, Mm -hmm. Uh, and having a great deal of affection for them.
1: And what does Amelia mean to him,
0: do you think? I think he has a kind of um, paternal feeling for her, and that, of course, I'm very aware of the, you know, modern modern eyes see such a thing as very, you know, look askance at that because there is a kind of... um, You know, people might think incest is implied. Um, I see him as as paternalistic, though, not paternalistic, but paternal, father-like, a friend to her. I think he sees himself as a friend and a helper, and I think she's grateful for him, and yet she ends up deceiving him, for which she feels guilty.
1: Which brings us to (laughs) William Shakespeare, (laughs) (laughs) whom Amelia also meets in this period. um... Describe your Shakespeare. What, what makes him
0: unique? I think, I have a great deal of fun writing Shakespeare, I have to admit. And I think what makes him unique in my book is that I don't put him on a pedestal. I don't think of him as the great uh, god of English literature. I think of him as an enormously talented, uh, brilliant, uh, clever, fun person. And I try to bring out the fun aspect of him, the The wit and the cleverness and the liveliness and the energy and uh, the drive and ambition, too. And also, his attitude toward women was not entirely as we might have wished. You know, he he left his wife, you know, and and was was supposed to have had at least, um, you know, several relationships outside of marriage, besides um, Amelia, if she was the Dark Lady of the Sonnets. Uh, and then there were supposed to be others. There were anecdotes told about him meeting with for example, one about him meeting with a citizen's wife who who wanted to who went up to Burbage after a performance of Richard the Third and said that she wanted him to come to her house and say that it was Richard the Third so Shakespeare supposedly overheard them, and so he went to her house and so he was he was let in and then later when uh when Richard Burbage, he's he's the actor who was the main actor of the of Shakespeare's acting company, Burbage shows up and says that he's that Richard III is there, and Shakespeare sends back word that William the Conqueror came before Richard III. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> that's
1: a good line. You have to give him credit. Yes,
0: it's a good line. Yes, <laughs> and it's told by a contemporary, so it could be true. <laughs>
1: And he left his wife with three kids, as I recall.
0: Which uh, uh-huh. I'm sorry, what you say?
1: He left his wife with three kids, so I'm, I'm pretty uh, amazed. Yes. If she ever let him back uh-huh. in the with
0: <laughs> Oh, I know, but they may have may have had to get married because they got married uh, when he was nineteen and she was twenty six, and six months later, their first child was born. Ah. And then about a yeah, and then about a year later, uh, the twins were born. So, he, yeah, and then shortly after that, uh, we don't hear any more about Shakespeare in Stratford. Uh, and about seven years later, we hear of him in London. Doesn't
1: seem to have learned his lesson, though. <laughs> 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 well, <laughs> I maybe. guess nobody else can marry him. I guess that's why.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, marrying that young also closed off some opportunities to him. Because in my book, I have him say that he, um, his father would have tried to send him to a university. But... In those days, only unmarried people could go to university. Right. Mm-hmm. So, and,
1: and this is fairly early in his career when he meets a and the sonnets are written right. fairly early on. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's sort of yeah. in the Romeo and Juliet period, and so the Shakespearean love period. Right? Yeah,
0: that's right. He's just getting started. And so I had him talk about um, some of his earlier plays. You know, he wrote... Taming of a Shrew, fairly early. And that was based on another existing play called The Taming of a Shrew. And he wrote uh, Titus Andronicus pretty early. That may have been his first play. Or, um, let's see, Two Gentlemen of Verona. And then, uh, you know, uh, Romeo and Juliet was early. Also, he wrote, that was really, I guess, maybe his first really great, great play. And then there were the history plays. Probably the Henry the Sixth plays were, you know, they were before the later ones, before the Henry the Sixth and those.
1: Well, that explains a lot about Titus, because it was his probably his the one that he shouldn't is- have
0: published. You know? Oh, I know, it, it was awful. You know that it, it it had some it has some good parts in it, but mainly it's just you know revolting. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know?
1: So, what draws Shakespeare to Amelia, and what draws Amelia to him?
0: What draws Amelia to him? a spark of a spark of life uh um, wit intelligence um banter charm you know he's he's very charming. I try to portray him as somebody who is like like puck, you know somebody who's almost magical at the very beginning, and he just he just enchants her. And I think he sees something like that in her. He sees something. He sees a whip that can match his in her. And he sees uh, not only beauty, because I'm thinking of her as not so much conventionally beautiful as having a, you know, having just having a an air about her, just having this, this allure that can be dangerous to her. And yet, has, you know, it can serve her well and it can... Be damaging to her, too.
1: Yeah, you convey that yeah. really well, um, I think. It, I, do, I also see her not um, necessarily as conventionally beautiful, but one of these very vivacious women so that you don't even notice it, whether they're beautiful or not. Mm-hmm. They just come across
0: mm-hmm. as, Yeah, um, She has so
1: much personality. Yeah. So, I'm sorry, I interrupted you, which I didn't mean to do.
0: Oh, that's fine. That's fine. I like, I like to hear your response responses to it. Anyway, they are drawn to each other's wit and intelligence and spark.
1: And uh, from Shakespeare, I mean, one of the things he does, uh, I guess to make ends meet, uh, is he works as a part-time bookseller when he's not writing Mm plays. And he gives Amelia a book uh, called The City of Ladies by Christine de Pizan, um, which Mm -hmm. I know about um, because I'm a historian and uh, I've done a lot of work with women's history. uh But uh, I'm not hey. sure all my listeners do. So, tell us about this book and what it means to Amelia and how she, you know, what she makes of it. What is the book? Okay. for starters.
0: What is the book? The City of Ladies is an allegory, a defense of women against the tax made on them by men. Christine de Pizan wrote at the court, wrote at the French court, and there were a number of books being published then, and. Italy, France, England, uh, which attacked women. I think it was started by the Romance of the Rose. Jean de Meun, who wrote the Romance of the Rose, is very satirical and critical of women. Christine said that she was deliberately writing to defend women against these unjust attacks. So in the City of Ladies, she has herself uh, being visited by allegorical figures, ma- mainly Lady Reason, who tells her that she needs to get up and stop stop moping and get to work defending women with with the powers of reason and and facts and so Christine gives a catalogue gives a catalogue of good women. You know, women who have been valorous and uh, virtuous and all that, and makes arguments against these attacks on women. So Amelia is just drawn in, mesmerized by reading this. I think it's ironic that I have Shakespeare give the book to her, but he turns out to be a bit misogynist a little later. But anyway, Amelia is just enthralled by this book, and it stimulates her thinking so much. She already was inspired by the Duchess of Suffolk, who told her that uh, that a woman could indeed write a book if God inspired her to do so and so now here's another woman in a more secular tone saying, "Yes, women uh, are worthy, and women should defend women against these attacks so this This really does affect Amelia in uh, Many many ways, or developing sets of herself, as you say, as a poet and as a thinker.
1: And much later, as, as you, you already mentioned, this book. So I'm not giving anything away by saying it. But in 1611, she writes, in a sense, her own version of the City of mm-hmm. Ladies, and mm-hmm. um, it's and it was one of the first feminist tracks in England. But tell us some of you know what were some of her arguments? What you. I okay, don't know whether you um, want to go into also, you know, what drove her to write this or any of that. I mean, it's it's really up to you to decide how much you want the the audience to hear. Okay.
0: Um, yeah. Um, first of all, the book is ostensibly religious. It has a Latin title, Salve Deus Rex Judaeum, which means "Hail, God, King of the Jews." It's, you know, I'm not a major Latin scholar by any means, but but it's I've read that it's. Kind of awkward Latin, but, um, it has meaning for Amelia, and it may have a reference to her own heritage. It may, um, just, it's a kind of cover, though, for what she really wants to say. This, it's a, it's ostensibly about the crucifixion, about Pilate's wife coming to Pilate and saying, please do not, um, do not execute this man because, you know, he is, he is God. And, uh, Amelia has, she expands pilate's wife's words to include a spirited defense of Eve, and um she says that eve that eve did not uh, intend to do any harm by giving Adam to eat of the apple um she makes in other words, Amelia makes biblical arguments she says Eve only wanted to do good and and her other argument, which I think is is really delightful, she says, and even if she did sin by By getting Adam to eat of the tree of knowledge what you propose to do by killing Christ is so much worse that it should cancel out the whole the whole other sin it should cancel each sin out altogether and so therefore women should have their equality because we have women did not did not commit as evil a sin as you have as men have So she uh, she turns the argument cleverly on its head in such a way and uh, makes a strong and spirited argument for women's equality. And she said, "Let us have our liberty again," implying that once women had liberty and now don't. And says, "Why should you, why should you uh, oppose our being your equal?" I'm talking to men, and so that's the main poem in the book. And then she includes another poem in the book. Called Cook 'em. And this is a poem about a country estate where she spent some time with Lady Cumberland, Margaret Clifford, Lady Cumberland, and her daughter, Anne Clifford. And she may have been a lady in waiting. She may have been hired to teach music to Lady Anne, who was only in her early teens at the time. And so she says in the poem that she promised Lady Cumberland that she would write a description of that place because they had loved it so much and they hated to leave it. So she writes uh, a description of Cumberland, I mean of Cookham, and she tells a story about how on the day they had to leave that she and Lady Anne, the the young girl, go to a, a great oak tree on the property and Anne kisses the tree and then Amelia kisses the tree where Anne had right after her. And so I put that scene in the book. I thought it was uh, really a charming scene and shows so much about Amelia and her connection to Lady Cumberland and her daughter.
1: It is a charming scene. So it's interesting. So these two things don't seem to have much to do with each other. Um, But they were published together, I guess, because she had written them.
0: Yes, Mm -hmm. they were published together. Uh, I think the connection is Lady Cumberland because uh, the book, there's a dedication to Lady Cumberland in the book, as well as um, the Cookham poem being specifically written for Lady Cumberland, and it was the first uh, country house poem in English. Ben Johnson also gets most of the, gets the credit for having written the first country house poem in English, Penthurst, and that was published in uh, 1616, and Amelia predates it since it was published in 1611. So anyway, a little more about um the connection. I just wanted to say that Amelia includes in that book nine dedications to nine women who are who are most of them connected to one another. All of them are titled. There's the Queen, Queen Anne and her daughter, Princess Elizabeth, and then another a uh, relative of the king, Lady Arbella Stewart, who was known for being a learned lady, and then the others: Lady Cumberland and her daughter, and uh, Susan, Lady Kent, uh, who had been Amelia's mentor when she was young, and then a couple of others. Um, uh, Lucy, Lucy, Countess of Bedford is a, is a niece of niece by marriage of Lady Cumberland, and they were all like a tight. Uh, a uh, uh, group there at court of learned ladies, and they they surrounded Mary Sidney, who was the Countess of Pembroke, who was to Philip Sidney's sister, and she translated his his. She finished his translations of the Psalms that were left unfinished at his death, and then she went on and wrote plays, and which were not performed, but they were. She wrote a um, Anthony and Cleopatra play, which was what they call a closet drama meaning it was meant to be read not performed and she was known as the most um the most prominent literary woman of her time
1: Oh, so that's another way in which it's a celebration of women it, it's celebrating these nine um mm-hmm. women at
0: court. that's right mm-hmm. and then she she does another um it's like she tries to include as many women as she can because then she writes another one to uh, all virtuous ladies in general, <laughs> and then another. You know, let me not leave anybody out, <laughs> and then she writes another one to the virtuous reader. So it sounds like those to...
1: acknowledgement sections in books,
0: doesn't it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. and anybody I may have forgotten, please don't take it Anybody firstly. I may have forgotten, that's right. You're included too. <laughs> and see, this is unique because Amelia was the first woman to seek patronage, uh, as a man would, as a pa- as a male poet would, like Shakespeare or Ben Jonson or another one. You know, by dedicating her book to uh, a well to do person that was it was really like um Applying for a foundation grant is today. You know, you try to get noticed and funded by someone who can can give you that patronage.
1: So um you have your own interpretation of whether Amelia was, in fact, Shakespeare's Dark Lady and I don't know that mm-hmm. we want to give that part away. But you have said online that you think there might be a connection between the Dark Lady Sonnets and or at least you can imagine a connection
0: between the Dark Lady mm-hmm. Sonnets and these
1: this book of Amelia's. Um did you want to talk about that part at all?
0: Yeah, and first of all I have no proof that Amelia's the Dark Lady of the Sonnets. Uh uh it's just speculation, it's um argued by al rouse and a number of others um i think the idea is coming to be a little more accepted now for a long time english literature people and women's studies people didn't want to even consider it largely because i think they it took away emphasis on amelia as a poet in her own right you know just connecting her to shakespeare and also uh rouse was a little bit for himself and and didn't say very good things about English literature people they didn't know how to do history. they were totally wrong about everything. He was the only one who knew what was really had happened and so a little bit of that was um I think a bit irksome to some of them but anyway, um whether or not Amelia was the dark lady in my book, she is, and um i I don't have any proof, but I like the idea that she might have been. And so my connection was that she was spurred to write her book when she reads Shakespeare's sonnets and reads some of the really really uh, negative things that he says about the dark woman in his sonnets.
1: Yeah, I mean, he really doesn't portray the dark lady very well to the point where some people have speculated that it's really a man that he's writing to. Oh, Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. That was I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Go ahead.
1: No, no, I was I was done.
0: Yes. Yeah. Uh that was Ralph's theory that the sonnets tell a story of a love triangle between Shakespeare, his patron, the Earl of Southampton, and um, the Dark Lady. And his story is that uh, Shakespeare really loved, in a kind of platonic way, the young man. And the Earl of Southampton was only 18 when Shakespeare met him. But he was already very learned, and he he patronized um, poets. And and, uh, so Shakespeare dedicated his first published poems to Southampton and wrote these very uh very graceful, lovely dedications to him. So uh, Ralph speculated that the young man of the sonnet is the Earl of Southampton and that Amelia came between Shakespeare and his his patron and that Shakespeare has this sort of love hate relationship with her. So I'm I'm kind of putting that in, except that I'm not seeing Southampton as this almost paragon of virtue that Ralph saw him as, and I'm not seeing Amelia as this degraded and uh, no better than she should be person that Ralph sees her as. You know, Ralph is kind of back and forth about Amelia. He, on one hand, he says she's the best woman poet of her age, but that's not saying much. He says, (laughs) and then he says she's no better than she should be, and she's a bad lot and things like that. So I wanted to tell her story from her point of view. So anyway, I'm imagining that she was triggered to write her poems, write her book, by the negative portrayal of the woman in the sonnets. So what would you like readers to take away from Dark Lady? How women's lives are both different and the same from the age of Elizabethan age. How far we've come and yet how far we still have to go because misogyny is still very alive among, among us, and more I'd just like people to have an experience of what it's like to have lived in that time as much as I could evoke it as a woman and how it was to be, to be alive in such an exciting and frightening and dangerous and yet glorious time.
1: I have to tell people, you do a wonderful job with that. Um, one of the tests of a historical novel is if you can get all of the, the details in there without them overwhelming the story, and you definitely do a great job with that. I was going to ask you more about your research, but we're running out of time, so we'll leave it for okay, the next you. interview. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> yes, it, it's really a lovely um, look at Elizabeth and England in all its range um, because, you know, We tend to think of Gloriana and uh, The Magnificent Mm -hmm. Past, but it was often dirty and uh, unfortunate Mm -hmm. and, you know, Mm poverty-ridden and goodness knows what else. And all of that Mm -hmm. is hinted at as well.
0: Um, So what are you working on now? Do you have another novel underway? Well, my uh, wife and I, Ruby Ware, uh, have just finished writing a mystery novel called Murder at the Estate Sale, Which is a bibliomystery. It's about two booksellers who discover an ancient uh, manuscript and try to solve a murder. We hope that it can become uh, the first of a series. It uh, involves Simon Foreman, the astrologer, and the book by him that they are searching for.
1: Ah, I love book mysteries. I'm definitely going to look for
0: that. (laughs) (laughs) So good. Yeah, it's a bibliomystery. a
1: book, a a mystery about a book. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, right up my alley. So thank you so much for sharing your time with us. It's been a wonderful conversation.
0: Thank you so much, Carolyn. I really enjoyed talking with you.
1: And thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I'm CP Leslie. And today I've been talking with Charlene Ball about Dark Lady, a novel of Emilia bassano Lanyer. You can find out more about her at http colon charleneball.com That's one word, Charlene Ball. Like us on Facebook, search for NB Historical Fiction, and follow us on Twitter at YouBooksFistFic. If you do, you'll see each time we post a new interview. You can also find out more about me, my website, and my books at blog.cpdesley.com where I upload expanded posts about the interviews and in general discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. Goodbye until my next conversation about new books in historical fiction.